podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS Missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. Now that we are back together every Sunday and have been since after Easter, we've gotten back in the habit of reciting every Sunday together the Nicene Creed, as we just did. And every time we do stand up together as God's people, who have received the Spirit as Guarong did last week in baptism, and recite these words, we say, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But I do know as a pastor that with all things that we recite over and over again, week in and week out, we sometimes can just say the words without really stopping to think about what they mean. Do you ever think about those words? And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Do you believe them? What do they mean for you? About six years ago, Angus Reed, the big pollsters in Canada, did a survey of people on their religious beliefs. In that survey, they asked fellow Canadians like you and I, Is there life after death? 42% of Canadians said yes. Which is actually quite a high number if you think about it. I expected it to be lower, but 42%. 23% said no, a little bit less than a quarter. And 35% were agnostic. In other words, they didn't know. They weren't sure. Now, when they drilled down a little bit more and said, okay, What do you think happens after death? 36% again said they don't know. 24% said we simply stop existing. 25% said we go to heaven. 9% said we go somewhere else. I don't know where that is. Maybe it's Jamaica. I don't know. And 6% said they believe in reincarnation that we come back as another person or a cat or a mosquito or a water buffalo, I don't know. Do you know what nobody said of all these people that said they believe there's some kind of life after death and what that life after death might be? Do you know what nobody answered? I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, with all due respect, it could be that because Angus Reid didn't specifically provide that as an opportunity for an answer, that's why people didn't answer that. But still, given that not only Lutherans, but Anglicans and Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox and many other Christian groups almost every Sunday recite those words, it's surprising that nobody just gave that answer. Well, what happens after death? I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Why is that? Why do even Christians, and there are still Christians in Canada, although sometimes you wonder, you look around, but we know that there are. Why is it that we have such a hard time with what was a foundational belief for the early Christian church? Part of it is, even those of us who come from other places in the world, but have grown up under the influence of Europe and European thinkers, 
we have become children of the Greeks. What do I mean by children of the Greeks? We, without even realizing it, think in Greek ways. And sometimes within the church, we have to unravel all of those ways of thinking and get us back to thinking the things of God, who was a Hebrew. I joke a little bit, but Jesus was, after all, a Jew and a Semite, and so he would have spoken Aramaic and probably learned a little bit of Hebrew at school. How do the Greeks think about death? Well, the Greeks had this idea that you're probably going to think, oh, I see what you're getting at, Pastor, with thinking like a Greek. The Greeks had this idea that we are both spiritual and physical beings. There's the physical world, matter, wood, concrete, the sign, grass, our bodies. And then there's the spiritual world that's ethereal, that can't be seen, that's mysterious out there. And for the Greeks, that world was the one that really mattered. No pun intended. Matter didn't matter. It wasn't all that important. The physical world was the thing that was going to pass away and didn't really have any permanency to it, where the spirit did. The ancient Greek poet Homer talked about at death the spirit being stuck eternally in hell. But then later Socrates and the later philosophers said, no, 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 the spirit goes to live forever in heaven. But either way, there was no concept of the physical world or bodies having anything to do with what happens after death. But with Jesus and the gospel and the spread of the Christian church around the Mediterranean, you had this huge clash of worldviews. You have people like Paul who are going out to preach in Philippi and Corinth and Athens and even all the way to Rome, which while it was Roman, was heavily influenced by Greek thought, but bringing with him the message of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had come in the flesh in Jesus of Nazareth to save the world in a body. And for the Jews... To exist without a body was just not ideal. And you see that from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where when God makes things out of nothing, when the Spirit comes and makes the physical world, at the end of every act of creation, God says it was good. Now we've got trees, and they are good. We've got fish, and they are good. We've got birds, and they are good. And we have human beings made from the dust of the ground, but having the breath of life breathed into them, Adam and Eve, and they were very good. When Jews died, the ancient Hebrew people, take Joseph as a great example, They weren't cremated. They weren't burned. Their bodies were allowed to sort of go down to bones. And those bones were treated with great reverence and respect. This was the body, the vessel in which Joseph lived. And something was going to happen to those bones at some future date. And so Joseph made his brothers promise and his family promise that after he died, 
Someday when God would liberate the people from Egypt and bring them back to the promised land, they would bring his bones with them. Job, which we've been talking about in Bible study a couple weeks ago, when he is dealing with the loss of his health and his home and his children and his cattle and all the material stuff of his life, doesn't cry out, oh, Lord, free me from this material existence and make me a spirit to go and dwell up in the clouds somewhere. No, Job says the thing that we say often at funeral services, that even though my body wastes away, yet somehow in my flesh, I will see God. My own eyes, Job says, will see God, these eyes and not another. And then, of course, we have Jesus encountering Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus has died. And as Jesus goes to comfort Martha, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha, almost without thinking, almost the same way that all of you say, and also with you, when I say, the Lord be with you, says, I know my brother will rise again on the last day. That was the Hebrew faith instilled in those people by the very God who took flesh and lived among us, Jesus of Nazareth, that our souls and bodies together make us who we are. Now, all that's the background for 2 Corinthians. And Paul coming along and talking about this tent in which we live. Now, Paul is speaking to Greeks as a good Christian, descended from the Hebrew people. And he starts out by sounding very Greek. While we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. We would rather be away from the body. And the Greeks are all like, mm-hmm, yep, yep, bodies are bad. Can't wait to be free from this body. We are spirits in the material world, and we will be free of this body and go and live in the Champs-Élysées, the Elysian Fields, or some other spectacular place where we won't have to muck around with all this flesh and bone anymore. But then, Paul changes direction. And says, first of all, when Jesus finally consummates all things, he says, each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Judgment comes upon what we have done, not just while we have existed, but but in these bodies. What we do in them to ourselves and towards others matters. And then Paul, just to drive the point home, says, when I'm talking about this tent, when I'm talking about being free from this earthly body, I'm not saying I want us to be naked spirits. Not that we would be unclothed. Paul's like, that's not what I'm saying. But that we would be further clothed. That the tent we're wearing right now needs to be upgraded to like a fifth wheeler. Y'all know what a fifth wheeler is? Those big trailers that you need a big truck to drive on? Or an RV, you know, with all the oak cabinetry inside with the extensions that pull out one side and the other. You guys camp. You know what this is all about. You know, you look at them and think, I don't know, when it's pouring rain outside, tents? uh." And Paul says, that's what we want, a better tent. Not no tent, because no tent is Greek, and no tent is bad. 
God has put us in a tent for a reason. It's just that our tents leak. They've got holes in them. The mice sneak in. We need something better. Now, I'm a graduate of the University of Waterloo, the one that's in Ontario, Emily. When I'm in the United States, I would often say, I'm from the University of Waterloo, and immediately everyone would say, oh, Iowa. No, 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 no. Kitchener. And of course, Waterloo is known for two things. It's engineering school, and it's math school. It's a numbers school. And yes, people do go there and study the arts, but we always ask them why. There's a perfectly good university two kilometers down the road. Wilfrid Laurier, go there and read and do music and stuff. We are all about the spreadsheets and we are all about the numbers. And in my little dorm, we had people that studied computer engineering with the engineering faculty and computer science in the math faculty, the pink tie people. And they would go at it, these two groups, right? And the rest of us, civil engineers, architects, art students, would always say, what, what exactly is the difference between what you do and what you do? What is the difference between computer science and computer engineering? Because computers are computers, right? And this was back in the day when the internet was just being born. We'd just gotten email addresses and we're trying to find other people with email addresses. Little did we know what a monster email would become, but there we were. So what is the difference? Computer engineering is about the actual machine. It's the hard drives, it's the RAM, it's the screens, it's the box, it's the chips, it's all of the material stuff that makes a computer a computer. Computer science is about the code. It's about what you put on the chip that makes the computer more than an extremely expensive piece of plastic and metal. Computer science is about Windows versus iOS versus Android. It's about WordPerfect versus Word versus OpenOffice. It's about the actual lines of language that make the machines run. The thing is, you've got to have both to make your computer work. If you just have the hardware and no operating system on it, like I said, it's just a very expensive doorstop. And if all you have is the flash drive or in the olden days, the CD-ROM disk or whatever that has your operating system on it and your office suite, again, very, very important, but it doesn't do anything. It just kind of sits there waiting for the day when it's going to have a computer or a mobile phone or a server on which to run. So I'm of that generation where people will come to me and say, Pastor, my computer doesn't work. Uh, pastors, apparently, it's one of those courses we take in seminary, which is Computer Fixing 101. Um, missionaries have to know all sorts of things like this. How to fix your computer. Well, the first thing you look at is, is the software running well? Does it have malware? Is there a virus? Is there something that has caused that code to decay so that it's no longer working well? And can we get rid of the bots and get rid of the malware and get rid of the virus so that now your computer will work? 
computer science. Over on the other side, we might have a hardware problem. Your software might be perfectly good. You might have the newest version of whatever it is, Apple, Sierra, Safari, Desert, Gobi, I don't know, they're naming all their stuff. It used to be just Apple 10, it was easy. Or you've got Windows 10 and you've got all the patches and everything is installed, but the hardware is so old that it just doesn't work. Your hard drive is dying. You've got 500 megabytes of RAM. You've got no graphics card. We've got to update the hardware or it's never going to run the programs that you want to have. Now, what does any of this have to do with Paul and 2 Corinthians and the tent in which we live? Well, there is a point here. And the point is, if we think biblically about who we are as people, we are both hardware and software. Both of them. We're not just one or the other. You can't just say, well, all I need is the hardware, and if I just got rid of the software, I'd be fine. Then you're a dead body. Well, then all I need is the software, and I don't need the hardware. Well, if I've got the software, you've got a really great collection of, of data and personality and memories, but, but how can it run? What does it run on, and how does it interact with the world? Our software has a problem. We call it sin. You could just as well call it the worst piece of malware ever written. And it causes our systems to hiccup all the time. We never run the way we're supposed to run. It's like, I have, I have no idea why that happened over there. It's like, well, the software must be at fault. Well, no, it's not the software itself, but it is that malicious piece of malware that was introduced into our first parents in the Garden of Eden and has been copied down in successive generations and now lives in all of us. That's problem number one. That malware has got to be written out and destroyed. Problem number two is the hardware. Because of that malware, our hardware is all falling apart. Our hard drives are failing and our RAM is inadequate and we don't have the graphics card that we need. And gradually, eventually, our hardware simply stops working. And we call that death. Paul says that death is the wages of sin. Because of this malware, our hardware simply stops functioning. So problem number one is clearing out the virus out of the software. Problem number two, then, is getting new hardware that isn't going to fall apart, that isn't going to have a failing hard drive, that isn't going to have RAM, that simply wears out. The software problem and the solution to that starts there. In that font, where God says, we're going to attack the root cause of the problem. And the first thing we're going to do is acknowledge every time we gather together that we are by nature sinful and unclean. There's malware running in our system, and it's got to go. It has got to be cleaned out. And so God sends goodware into our system called the Holy Spirit. 
that is constantly going after and chasing down all those little bits of malicious code and killing them off. And every time we gather together to hear the good news that God has sent his son into the world to die on the cross, that God has raised him from the dead. Every time we are overflowing with that good news over our ears and into our heads, the spirit is going after that malware. The second problem, though, is these tents, which honestly need a lot of repair. And that is what we wait for on the last day. That on the last great last day, when we are rid of all of that virus that has been causing us to think bad thoughts, to go after our neighbor when we should be supporting them, to think the worst about what people around us are doing to be tempted to look after ourselves rather than others. When all of that is gone, then we can do a fresh install on new bodies that will never decay and that will never die. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 5, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Basically saying the same thing. If we try and clean out all of the malware and reinstall it in this body, it's not going to work. Our bodies just aren't built for it. It's like trying to install Windows 10 on a Pentium 3. It isn't going to work. But on that last day, when our bodies become these new, glorious, more fully clothed bodies that cannot get viruses or transmit them, that don't need vaccines, that don't have to wear masks, that don't get cuts, don't get bacteria from cuts, then we will be rebooted. And then we will live in what all of the Bible writers call the new creation, the last great day when all things are restored. When the heavenly Jerusalem descends from heaven and earth is once more finally at peace. For in this tent we groan, Paul says. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling. New hard drive, more memory, better graphics like the works. But we don't want to just be software floating up there in the cloud. We've got to have bodies. Just they need to be better ones. And so when the last great day comes, we will rejoice. In fact, we can rejoice now because we know that day is coming. And when we die, we know we will be in the embrace of Christ until that day, which is why Paul can say, I'm not at all worried about being away from the body, because in that moment, I will be at home with the Lord until the day of resurrection. That is why Jesus died in a body for you and for me. And it's why he rose again, if to do nothing else but to become the best antiviral software ever, which is the Holy Spirit, to clean us out, to make us new, and prepare us for the day when we will have new tents in which we will never groan again. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening. God
God bless your week.